Well, it probably goes without saying, but not everyone is cut out to be a leader. In fact, it seems the vast majority of people are followers, not leaders. And that's okay. People are different and differently gifted. Leaders, leaders are not inherently superior people, and every part of the body of Christ is just as important and valuable to the Lord. But it is worth pointing out that leaders are cut from a different cloth. They have some different characteristics. For one, they should have mature and godly character. And that's something we've been setting recently in this biblical leadership series, that the character of a biblical leader. God has one standard of godliness for the church. That's for all of us, Christ himself. But those who lead the church are called to a high accountability to that one standard. They really should match up. They have, need to have tested, proven, mature character. And that sets them apart. At the same time, though, leaders also need to possess certain special qualities. According to scripture, one's moral character is a, a basic requirement for leadership. That doesn't mean you're going to be an effective leader just because you're morally qualified. It, it sets you up. You're, you can lead, but that doesn't mean you'll be a good or great leader. And so there's also certain leadership qualities that make for an effective leader. A person could be morally qualified, and they can know a thing or two about the Bible and doctrine, but that doesn't automatically then make them in practice a good leader or an effective leader. Plenty of guys went through seminary, and they were morally qualified, they're doctrinally sound, but they lack some key leadership qualities and just stunted their leadership, and they might see trouble in, in their churches. And so along these lines, tonight we're going to study some of these key leadership qualities. The past couple of weeks, we've been studying the, the character of biblical leadership, and this in some ways is going to overlap, but it, it is distinct. These are now the qualities of biblical leadership. Here we're in uh, lesson eight of this biblical leadership series on now the qualities of biblical leadership. And scripture seems to identify a set of qualities that make for an effective leader. These qualities can be groomed. They can be grown. This is part of the skill of leadership. We want to spend some time, though, identifying them, explaining them, learning about them, that we might grow in these qualities of leadership. And so we're going to do that tonight, and we're going to do that next week as well. It's kind of like the character. We split that into two. Don't want to just rush right through it all. And so likewise, there's enough of these characteristics, enough of these qualities uh, to give us a couple weeks worth. So we're going to do that. We'll see how many we get through right now. But I tell you what, understanding the qualities of a biblical leader is going to help us transition to start learning about the task of leadership. Because these start to deal more with, with the task, the action of leadership. So far, we've spent really all of our time learning about the foundation of leadership. What, what, what does it mean to be a leader biblically? And pretty soon, we're going to start getting into the, the practicals, the how-to. How do you lead? How do you do the things that the biblical leader is called to do? The task. Well, these qualities serve as part of, partly a transition from you know, the, the essence of a leader to the task of the leader. You'll see what I mean as we go. But let's start. Some qualities of biblical leadership. I don't have a number for you yet, because we'll, we'll finish it last week, but there'll probably be you know, between 10 to 12 total. So you can, you can eyeball it. Today, about five. Number one, marked by grace. The qualities of a leader, he or she must be marked by grace. So grace. Grace can be defined as giving people what they don't deserve. Mercy can be defined as not giving someone what they do deserve. Really two sides of the same coin. 
And they both characterize God's disposition toward us. His grace is abounding to sinners. His mercies are new every morning. And like Oliver was saying, aren't you thankful for that? You should be. I hope you are. We need that reminder. Think of all the judgment and the discipline we deserve for all of our sins and shortcomings. And think of all the blessings we don't deserve that we have. That's God's mercy and his grace toward his children. And and you should be thankful. And there's no doubt that this is one area of God's essential character that we need to reflect in the church and especially as leaders in the church to reflect his mercy and grace in dealing with others. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so we are told to, Luke 6.36, be merciful as your father is merciful. We're even told to Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Gracious speech. You know, we all should be characterized by grace and mercy, reflecting the same treatment we've received from God. But these attitudes, these qualities, they're especially important for those in leadership to be marked by grace. Think about this question. How do you react when people under you fall or fail, come short? Maybe an employee, someone at work, your spouse, your kids. What would be some wrong reactions? Hypothetically speaking, some wrong reactions. Someone under you, under your leadership in some way, they fail you. They, they fall short. What would be some wrong reactions? Oh, yeah. Asserting it over them. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yelling and outbursts of anger. Yeah, a chiding, a verbal lashing. And what's wrong with these reactions? What's the, what's the problem there? Instead, they are tearing down. They're, it's the opposite of edifying. They're, they're tearing others down. You know, the outbursts of anger, rage, verbal lashing, harsh words, just bringing down the hammer of judgment. Not to say that, look, there might be a time for consequences for someone who has done something wrong or, or sinned. And, you know, life and sin sometimes comes with consequences. But as leaders, especially, if it's someone under you, you just have to be discerning. Is this a time for judgment or perhaps a time for grace? To discern when you're going to crush someone's spirit, discourage them, turn them away, especially if you respond in any sort of sinful anger or any sinful way, that's going to make for an ineffective leader. Look, when people fall short and fail in their responsibilities, there might be a time for consequences. That's kind of obvious. But the point I'm making here is just leave some room for grace and mercy in your dealing with others, those who have fallen. And this holds true for spiritual leaders as well especially when it comes to dealing with people in sin. Now, as a leader in the church, there's going to be people under you at all times, whatever your level of leadership might be. If there's anyone under you in any way, well, they're eventually going to sin. They're eventually going to blow it. They're eventually going to do something wrong that might even offend you or harm you or affect you. So how will you respond? Is it an occasion to unleash your wrath? To what end? Who who does that really serve or, or better other than just yourself? Sometimes sheep blow it or they fall down. Sometimes even bite their shepherd. But still, the shepherd must respond with grace and with mercy. That the person might not be discouraged 
and turned away, but restored and sanctified. You can think of an example of someone in Scripture who blew it big time and sinned against the Lord. Anyone come to mind? Peter. had yeah, a few Davids in there, but mostly Peter. Yeah, I was thinking about Peter. And just think about how Christ dealt with him. Turn to John 21. It's a quick reference, but you can turn there. John 21. And Peter, as you know, he fell hard into sin. He, he really blew it. He denied the Lord vehemently three times. He abandoned him in his moment of greatest need. Talk about blowing it. Peter is one who boasted that he would never deny Jesus. He would even die for Jesus. But when push came to shove, he quickly denied him. And in response, we're, we're fast forwarding. We're after the resurrection. Christ is with Peter. How could he have responded? He could have gotten angry with Peter. And for Christ, it would have been a truly righteous anger. He could have judged him. He could have cast him out. He could have not made him the leader in the church. He could have just said, you're out of here. I don't want you anywhere near my church. He could have harshly rebuked him. He could have brought down the hammer on Peter. And Christ would have been just and righteous to do so, being the Lord. But he didn't do this. How did he deal with Peter? He gently and graciously restored him. I think the difference here in dealing with people is, you know, when someone has already been humbled, they're already broken by their sin. It's time for grace. It's time for mercy versus the person who's still locked in pride and rebellion. And then it's time for admonishment. But look at what Christ says to him. Verse 15, John 21. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, this of course, after the resurrection, Christ goes and visits them at the Sea of Galilee. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, I take it you've heard this passage before, and you probably know what's going on here, but this is Jesus graciously restoring Peter as a leader, as a shepherd. Three times Peter denied Jesus, but Christ knew he had a moment of weakness, a moment of alternate weakness. In fact, he knew that was going to happen before it happened. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So look, Jesus knew Peter was, well, just a fallen sinner, a weak sinner. And that produced a sense of compassion for him, though. What mattered, though, is that he saw his heart. He was humbled. He was broken by his sin. And he had a real, genuine love for the Lord. He wanted to serve the Lord, but he was already broken and downtrodden, discouraged. And in that state, Peter could not lead, could not serve the Lord as he was going to need to. And so Christ knew what he needed, and that was just restoration, a gentle, gracious restoration, affirming love, affirming him as a leader. Three times Peter denied, but three times uh, he was restored with this love for the Lord. You know, if Jesus brought down the hammer of harsh judgment on Peter or a sharp rebuke, you can imagine what it would have done. It would have just further crushed his spirit. And it certainly wouldn't have prepared him to lead the church, the leader that God had 
and his will called him to be. A simple example, there are many like it, where we could learn a thing or two from, from Christ here, or called to be like this with others. The people under you, they're weak, fallen sinners. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. The difference here is that unlike Jesus, though, so are you. You too are a weak and fallen sinner. And that should produce just a measure of compassion for you, or for them rather, in your heart. Where even if, you, if they do blow it, you can deal graciously and mercifully with them to restore them. And a lot of this is just discerning the time to, to show that mercy and to show grace, to edify others. I remember one time, I'll leave the details vague enough, but we we're going to help someone with a benevolence need at the church. The need was large, about $500. There was a kind of a car emergency. And we had a 200 to give, so we offered 200 to help this person. And uh, how this person respond when I told them we would Give him $200. He got angry. He got angry. Like really angry. And basically said like, what am I supposed to do with $200? I can't buy, you know, I think it's new tires. I can buy new tires for $200. Like I said, I needed $500. Now, at least in my opinion, he should have been extremely grateful and thankful for the contribution. And granted, it wasn't the full $500, but it was still a grace gift under no obligation to give anything at all. So it was just a free gift. At the same time, I knew he was having a moment of weakness. He was just short-sighted, anxious, brought on by this trial with his car. Uh, I, could, I could see that. And I could have let him have it. I could have issued him a, a strong rebuke for his lack of gratitude. I could have said, no, we're not going to give you anything. We're, we're going to take the $200 back or just not give it to you. But you know, he, this, this, this guy was a dear brother in the Lord. He was a sheep. And I knew that although he was in the wrong, I'd only make things worse in the situation by responding in, in anger or a sharp word. Not going to serve him or, or help him see his error and, and him to be restored. Bringing down the hammer for his wrong response, it's only going to escalate the situation. So, look, I needed to reprove him. But, look, by God's grace, I was able to do so with a, a gentle and gracious spirit. In Proverbs 15.1 says, uh, a, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And so by God's grace, I was able to deal with him just graciously, help him see the, the folly in his response. Didn't need to reprove him, but was able to do so in a manner that by the Lord's grace, he, he did recognize his folly. He did recognize his, his error. He sought forgiveness and you know, expressed that gratitude. And you know, we ended up helping him come up with the rest of the money anyway. And the Lord did work it out. And, but we were restored. You know, and I think that's a, you might say, crisis averted, so to speak. But it makes me think of Galatians 6.1. It says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. To restore another in a spirit of gentleness. Well, we're sinners too. We have moments of weakness ourselves or we're, we fall in the flesh. I would want to be restored gently and graciously, we should do the same with others. You know, in leadership, you're going to deal with difficult people all the time. That's because you're dealing with sinners. Just keep in mind, you're a sinner too. And the way you treat others, well, to to a degree, you can expect that treatment in return. And you know what? One day as a leader, chances are you're going to blow it. You're going to say something you shouldn't have said. You're going to wrongly offend someone or just do something wrong. 
And on that day, you're going to pray that those people would be gracious with you and be merciful to you and understanding, show you a little grace. If they never learn from your example, though, a gracious spirit, what do you expect? At least you can't expect very much. And just be a man or woman of grace, marked by grace and mercy, so that when others see you, even if, even if they've done wrong and there will be consequences, at least they know they're not going to be abused. They won't be harshly condemned. They'll be gently restored. Just like the Lord gently restores us, that that's leadership. That's the leadership of Christ. And we can go to him. We sin, we fall so many times, but we know we can go to him in repentance and be graciously restored every time. Well, I think we should, we should really lean towards that and do the same. This really leads to the second quality, marked by patience. Marked by patience. Really go hand, hand in hand with being gracious. Patience is such a necessary quality for leaders. You really can't be gracious without having patience with others. And we're called to Ephesians 4.2. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And similar in Colossians 3.12, he says, so then as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These words just all seem to go together. Humility, gentleness, and then patience in your dealings with others. Now these verses, they relate to all believers. That's for all of us to deal with all people patiently. But in the example and the practice of a leader, it's all the more important. Here's another verse that you know, 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, he tells Timothy, with great patience and instruction, careful instruction. You know, that verse is Primarily directed at you know, the pastor, the teacher of the word. But if you ever thought, like, why does, okay, we get it. Preach the word in season, out of season all the time. Okay, preach it. That's, that makes sense. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Okay, that makes sense. Why patience? Why does he tell Timothy to preach and minister the word with patience? What's the connection with ministering the word and patience? What do you think? Okay, but why, why do you need to be patient as a teacher when you're teaching the word to people or a preacher? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so good. So first as an example, just leading with example. But there's something else, Tony. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, for anyone who starts to teach or preach or minister the word or, or leads others, remember what we're after in leadership, helping others become more like Christ, presenting every man or woman complete in Christ. Well, you know, you can't make people just do that. You can't snap your finger, fingers and make people change. You can't make people respond to the word like you would want them to respond to the word preached. And people are, are works in progress, ourselves included. 
And look, yeah, some sins that people have, they can be serious enough if unrepentant to merit exclusion from the church. But otherwise, we're not, not talking about that. Otherwise, look, you know, we're all sinners. We're all stumbling up the hill of Christ-likeness at, at different paces. And as a leader, you have to learn to be patient with the process, the process of sanctification, which is partly on God's timetable. We are called to responsibility there. But look, I can, I can only control myself, ultimately. I, as much as you want to shake someone and, and make them, you know, get over that one sin or just change this part of their life, you can't do it. You know, we trust the Lord for that, and therefore, patience is needed. Verse we've said a couple of times, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Remember that verse? It's a key like counseling verse for diagnosing people and then how to treat them. If someone's unruly, you, we need to admonish them. They're, they're still in pride. They need an admonishment. If someone's faint-hearted, like, like Peter, already broken, they don't need admonishment. You're going to crush them. They need encouragement, build them up, help them. If someone's weak, spiritually weak, well, help them. Just come alongside them, help them grow. But then he says, be patient with everyone, no matter what category they're in. You know, if you deal with people the wrong way, you're going to do damage. If you encourage someone who's unruly, you're just going to encourage them in sin. Or if you admonish someone who's faint-hearted, you're going to break them. So you can do damage if you wrongly respond to people. And you can do damage if you're impatient with people. You have the weak, immature believer who just kind of doesn't know better, and you're trying to help them grow, but they're, they're just not, they're not getting it. They're not growing fast enough. They're not connecting the dots. They're still kind of stumbling around in sin. You just want to, if you just lash out at them or, or judge them or just harshly rebuke them, you're just going to discourage them and dishearten them. You know, back when I was a college pastor, Angel or some of the other ladies would at times have some modesty talks with the young ladies. You know, a lot of these young ladies were coming to Christ you know, out of the world. And so they often brought the dress of the world with them. And so every now and then we teach on modesty. And some young ladies, you know, they needed to be graciously approached individually by some of the ladies in leadership. And you kind of have that talk on, on modesty in the church. But then what do you do if someone's not kind of changing fast enough? Literally. Well, you, you minister the word. Yeah, right. You minister the word and you might even need to reprove people, but then you just be patient. Let the word do its work. Let the spirit convict. Let the word minister to them. People, if, if they're going to meaningfully grow, they've got to get it. Or you can externally change their behavior and try and put them in a straight jacket, make them conform to our image. You can try and do that, but meaningful growth is from inside. They're convicted by the word and they, they believe it, it becomes a part of them, and, and they now want to do what the Lord calls them to do. That's the work of the Spirit. That's not in our power. We can minister that word, and then we pray fervently, but we trust God to, to work, and, and patience is needed for that. If you just deal harshly with people who aren't conforming to God's word or Christ's image fast enough on your timetable, you must control, you must see them at this place at this time in their walk, you're just going to just mishandle people. You're going to turn people away and discourage a lot of people. And it's going to be ineffective leadership. But patience will go a long way. You know, this even deals when you're, or this even uh, applies when you're dealing with a, a person who's in sin. 
an unruly believer. Same thing applies. He says patient with all. Even the unruly guy needs patience. Hey, maybe you're in a small group and there's someone in the group that just come out, comes out that they're just a habitual liar and they're unrepentant. They're unruly. They're unrepentant. And maybe like you, you want to see them removed as fast as possible. Like, can we kick this person out already? Just kick them out of the church. Just, can we just get rid of them as fast as possible? Well, look, there, there is a process for removing the truly unrepentant uh, habitual sinner. You leave that to church discipline, but you know, how about you just spend some time with that person and in a way wrestle with them. You exhort them, you reprove them from scripture in love with gentleness, but nonetheless you, you show them the word and then let the spirit work while you pray fervently for them. Pray that God would, would change them. Pray that he would convict them, show them the truth. We're so quick to complain against people or judge people or just want to remove people. But how about be quicker to, to pray for those, fervently pray for those and would do so with patience over, over some time. If you have trouble with this, just think about God. Is he not so patient with us? He's very patient with us. You know, he's, he's even patient with the wicked unbeliever. He's patient with them. So many examples of this. I just thought of Genesis 15. God calls Abram. He's making this covenant with Abraham, promising him a son. You know, all that stuff in Genesis there. But in that time, that, that encounter, that second encounter in Genesis 15, God says this to Abram, gives him a, a prophetic word. Just listen, Genesis 15, 13 through 16. Promise him a son. He said, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you should go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. No, just telling them that Israel will multiply under him, become a great nation, enslaved in Egypt 400 years, but they'll be delivered. Okay. Verse 16, he says, Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, the promised land, that's where Abram was. He says, though, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, last phrase kind of puzzles some people. Like, wait, what does that mean? Well, at the time, Abram was in the land of promise. And it was filled with the wicked Amorites and many other wicked people groups. They were extremely wicked, depraved. We're talking child sacrifice and and stuff like that. And so they were so wicked, God was going to wipe them out. He wasn't going to use a flood. He did that. No more global floods. But he's going to use Israel. Instead of a flood, he was going to use Israel as his instrument of judgment. Just wipe them off the earth. But not for 400 years. He was going to wait patiently with the Amorites and the, the Canaanites and those people groups 400 years to do this, to, to judge them. And, you know, the thing is, in Abram's day, they were in the land and they were just as wicked. They, they in, in a sense, in God's eyes, like they were ready to be judged right then. Abram, I imagine, would have felt like, why wait 400 years? Can we just like do this now or just speed this up? But, you know, God was going to be patient with their sin and rebellion and even allow them to persist for another 400 years, that's patient, even with, or patience rather, even with the wicked. Same goes for Israel, even as God's people. 
they were, you know, formally made a nation in what, 1440 BC, exiled northern uh, in 720 BC. He gave them about 700 years. Get their act together. They never did. In fact, through most of that time, they were wicked and unbelieving. But his patience, one of my favorite words, long-suffering with people. That's, that's just part of God's character. Yes, of course, there's a time where that runs out. There, there's a day of judgment. God will judge and do what is right. We're not that judge, though. So you just be patient. I mean, you just focus on the patience part and the long-suffering part. Leave judgment to God. I think we could show, at the very least, our fellow brothers and sisters in the church, maybe a few days of patience, a few weeks, maybe a few months, just patient, patiently wrestling with someone in their sin, praying for them, dealing with them, trying to help them. Leave it to the church and the leaders of the church to remove the the truly unrepentant sinner. That is a process for that, but we're we're not saying we turn a blind eye or ignore sin, just be patient. It's, a, it's an important leadership quality that will go a long way. Let things unfold. Let things play out. Do what is right. Minister the word. You reprove and rebuke when necessary. And then just trust God's sovereignty in their lives. Trust his will to work in their lives. Trust him to, to really, through the spirit, change people on, on his timetable. And, uh, and then pray. After all, patience, that's really just the same thing as Saying trust in God, right? Patience, trust in God. Things are, that are out of our control. So we trust God and, and really the, that process, we just call that patience. It's like trust in God when we can't really do anything. That's patience. Well, we need to move on. Number three, and marked by genuine concern. This is another big one. A leadership quality. One who is marked by genuine concern obviously for others. This should be a no-brainer, but it is worth mentioning. Do you want to be an effective leader? Well, how about you try some genuine concern for those you are leading? Like, you know, actually care about people. This is a novel idea, right? You know, actually care. It will take you pretty far. It'll make up for a lot of things. You know, some leaders, they view people as numbers who in some way contribute to their status but this is a great way to, to turn people away. People aren't dumb and they'll learn pretty soon and be able to discern that there's a leader who is kind of disingenuous, doesn't really care about them that much. You know, some churches, you have pastors and they pay a ton of attention to the new visitors and kind of wine and dine them, so to speak. But once they join the church and become actual members, never heard from again. The pastor, that is. You know, they, they might want some of the pastor's time, maybe meet for counseling or discipleship, but they can't book him anymore. He kind of reserves his time for the new people. He's trying to build the church. So, like, if you're an outsider, if you're a potential member, a potential giver, he'll give you his time. He'll, he'll spend time with you. He'll, he'll be concerned. Once you're kind of in, though, and, you know, you're, you're attending, you're giving, enough of that, enough of you. You know, it's time to move on to those new people. This kind of revolving belt of just conveyor belt of just we have concern for for the new people once the church once they're in though well you're kind of on your own now other leaders typically young leaders want to impress people wow people with their knowledge they think that because they know their bible better than anyone else you know people should respect them and submit to their authority 
And they kind of wield their Bible knowledge like a big stick. But the old adage holds true that people have to know how much you care before they care how much you know. You've heard it before. It's one of my favorites. Learn that lesson early on and it, it's, it goes a long way. Hey, you can make up for a lot. Hey, maybe you, you preach a sermon, you, you lead a Bible study and you just kind of drop a bomb. Or rather you drop an egg is the expression. You just kind of, you blow it, you bomb. You, you, the sermon was, was lame. The message didn't connect. You just, you just taught a bad lesson. But you know what? If you have people that, that know but this, this pastor, this Bible study leader, I know he loves me and I know he's trying hard and he's working. You know, that, that love, that concern, that mutual concern, it'll take you far. It'll go a long way. And people have to know, though, how much you care before they care how much you know. It just holds true. In my earlier days as a college pastor, when someone visited the old church, you know, I found, or the group, you know, I found they had some little doctrinal difference or practical difference I would rush and try and fix them. Now, here's this new person. Oh, they, they believe that? That's a little off. I better go fix them. It's time. To, we got to fix that person, right? And fast. Like, okay, sure, everyone's just having coffee and donuts right now. But how about you stand there for 30 minutes and I'll do all the talking. And let me make a little presentation here of premillennialism for you. And this is why you should. Let, let me fix you. And it's just a narrow and kind of shallow view of shepherding. How about I just go back to qualities one and two? Be gracious. Be patient. And how about just get to know the person? Show some genuine care and concern for this new visitor or new person or brother and sister in Christ. I'm not saying you've got to build a relationship or friendship before you can talk about anything meaningful with someone. No, that's not true. But I'm just saying you're going to get a lot farther with people when, you, 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 when they know you really care about them. You care about their soul. You care about their... Christ-likeness, you care about them, it will go a long way. I said this so many times, I'll say it again. I tell people all the time, even personally, that if I'm convinced that someone loves me and cares about me, they have my best interests in mind, they can come tell me anything. Even if they need to tell me something that might be hard to hear or even like even rebuke me. I'll take it. I'll listen to everything you have to say and, and really accept it if I, if I know you really love me and care about me. But if I'm not convinced you have my best interests in mind or that you do care about me or are concerned, I'm not really going to listen to much you have to say. And I imagine, you know, you'd probably do the same. You know, this quality of genuine concern for others. It's all over the leadership examples of Jesus and Paul. Think of Luke 19, the triumphal entry. Jesus approaches, he sees Jerusalem, and how does he respond? He weeps. Yeah, he, he weeps over the city, over the people. He, he's, just, he's concerned for them, and he knows they're lost, they're blind, they're dead. They don't know who I am. I know what they're going to do in a week, and I know what it's going to mean for them. And uh, look, it, it might be God's sovereign plan ultimately, but that doesn't change the fact that he had a genuine concern for them and his, his weeping over the city was not a charade. It was real concern and, and grief over these souls who were lost. Mark 6, he sees the crowd and he, he has compassion on them, it says, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. These people, the sea of humanity, they're just so lost. They, they don't get it. They don't know their God 
They don't know their sin. They don't know the Savior. They're just, they're lost. They're sheep without a shepherd. And therefore they need him. So he was going to stick around and feed them the bread and the fish and then feed them spiritually. But look, do you see people as numbers or as sheep? Do you see people as burdens or opportunities? There's a new person at church, a young believer. His life is a mess. He's been in a lot of trouble. Maybe he's even a recovering alcoholic, in and out of rehab. He's stumbling. He's had several falls. But right now, he's in the church. He's faithfully attending, but he's kind of a, he's going, it's, it's rough. He's a rough character. He's trying to follow Christ. And I'll tell you, it's, it's so much easier just to ignore a person like that. Because it's, it's all, so much trouble. There's a lot of trouble in their life. And to help them, it's going to take quite an investment of your time and energy. And it's going to be messy. And it's just easier to ignore them. You know, let them attend. Maybe they'll just get fixed by just sitting under the preaching and, and that's it. That's the easy part. You don't really want to talk to them or engage with them. And then, you know, maybe they'll go away. And if they do, you know, you won't really care. Look, I'll tell you, that's, that's the easier attitude, but that's, that's not the heart of a shepherd. If that's, if, if that's you, please get out of leadership right away. If, you, if, if we ever let you into leadership, that's on us too. But I know that's not at this church. Um, but you get what I'm saying though. You get the point. You know, the, see people, even with all their mess, we've got our own mess, see them as, this is a sheep. This is a, an opportunity. It's not a burden. Uh, this is a mission of leadership to serve, to help them see their need for Christ, to minister Christ. You have to embrace that. Then if you don't have such a concern for others, well, then you know what? Church leadership is just not for you, at least not yet. And for those who know my testimony, this, this issue is what kept me out of seminary for, you know, that first year and a half. And if you don't know, you know, I saved my freshman year at college at Berkeley. And by senior year, I, I just really grown fast in the Lord and, and theology and Bible knowledge and even some teaching. And so I even had the thought of going straight into seminary right after graduation instead of engineering, jumping right into seminary and becoming a pastor. But I decided against it. Why? Well, because I didn't really care about people. Like I just, I had no interest in discipleship or shepherding. I just wanted to go to seminary to, to study more, learn some more theology. And I thought that was cool. I still do. But, you know, I figured, thankfully, God, I, I'm, I'm grateful for his grace that gave me enough discernment to realize that's probably not the right motivation to go to seminary. Probably not the right heart to be a pastor. And so, you know, this is just not for you. And so I decided against it, just, you know, graduated, we got married, took my engineering job, served at our church down there, and that was that. Uh, the other story is over the next year and a half, God really grew my heart for people, for discipleship, for shepherding, that, that people matter. And in all the books, that's just a means to an end of ministering to people. That's another story. But I don't see how you can effectively lead God's people without a real concern for their souls for their sanctification. I don't see how you can do it biblically. You can't. You just read Paul's letters. Do you have any doubt that he genuinely cared for the churches? That he really loved all these churches, all these Christians? Do you have any doubt? I mean, have you read Paul's letters? Ephesians 1.16, he says to them, we do not cease giving thanks 
for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Colossians 1.9, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you. He says over in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, and he's lifting up, listing off all the hardships he's faced in ministry. And he says, you know, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? All these churches, so many he planted, all these relationships, and they just stuck with him. And as someone is, is falling, he, he feels it. It, it. it grieves him. That's bearing one another's burdens in it. He has just an intense concern. Oh, the false teacher, they're, they're, they're spreading in the churches of Galatia. And that's giving him intense concern because he cares. He doesn't want to see that work spoiled by the enemy. It's concern. It's genuine concern. And look, just make sure you have that same concern. If you don't, we know what? Pray. If you're, if you're bothered by people, if you don't want to engage in their lives, well, you know, pray. Pray that God would grow you, that he would grow your heart, that he would give you that concern for others. And just reflect on scripture and God will do that. Just pray that God, you know, like the Grinch, pray that God would grow your heart three sizes in one day. And then he will. He's faithful to do that. You recognize that and, and pray. But make sure you have this genuine concern for others. Number four here. Marked by sacrifice. Another, I find, really essential quality of the leader. Marked by sacrifice. We just mentioned 2 Corinthians 11. You can turn there if you like to follow along. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. You know, we just read the end of that passage. It's about all of Paul's ministry hardship that he faced as an apostle, as a missionary. He mentioned the daily concern of the churches. That wasn't his only hardship. Do you remember what he said before that? I'm sure it'll ring a bell. But what did he suffer in ministry? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors. In far more imprisonments. Beaten. Times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And that means nakedness. That's a lot. Like, you know, sometimes I lose a little sleep, you know, know, preparing a sermon or something, but, you know, it's not like that. What would you say to Paul? And so many would say like, well, why are you doing this? Why are you facing this? I just see a bunch of trouble here and suffering. You know, just throw in the towel. Try something else. Like, this doesn't seem to be working well for your life. You know, this can't be worth it. Why don't you just sit back, relax, enjoy life a little? Why, why so much zeal and you're suffering so much for this, you know, Christianity thing? 
Why are you doing all this? And maybe you've had family members who've said that to you. Maybe after your conversion, you're pursuing the Lord. Maybe it came with a cost. They just think you're crazy. Like, why, why, are, you, why are you suffering all this and sacrificing so much? And how would Paul answer? He has no choice. He doesn't have a choice in the matter because he's a servant of Christ. He's a slave of Christ. This was Christ's will for Paul as an apostle and representative. This just how it's going to be. They hated Christ after all, and so they were going to hate him. But he, he had no choice. He could not deny his master or his calling, his commission. He had a special commission. It's, what's he going to do? Just so be it. And we find that all spiritual leadership involves some measure of sacrifice. Now, look, we're not saying you have to be at Paul's level. No one really is these days, especially. But look, God calls and uses leaders differently. But understand, biblical leadership in the church inherently involves sacrifice. You're not going to be a leader without sacrifice, or at least not an effective leader. That's what we're talking about here. Remember how we define leadership. And if someone helped me from several lessons ago, what is the identity of the biblical leader? Two words. Yeah, very good. Thank you. I'm proud. Amen. Sacrificial servant. Sacrificial servant. You know, leadership, it's not about lording your authority over others and controlling them and ruling them. We found in the church, remember what we said? Leadership, it's service. You're a servant. You're serving others. There's spiritual needs, helping them become more like Christ. And as Christ led the way, that's going to involve some sacrifice. Laying down your life, your interests, your will for others. Sacrificial servant. That's why we said that. And we know that Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice to serve us. And we can't repeat that sacrifice, but we can follow it in a manner of speaking and just lay down our lives for others. In 1 Peter 2.21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So, just real quick, what are some of the sacrifices you might be called to make in church leadership? Time? Okay, maybe some expense? Time, yeah, schedule time. Anything else? Okay, yeah, it's just, just that, that sense of burden over the flock. Okay, I will help you. So we think you start with time. Yeah, long nights, counseling sessions, discipleship, laboring long with people, Bible studies, ministry hours in general. The hours are going to be long. And to do what you're called to do well, especially I see, you know, sometimes new teachers prepare a lesson. Hey, it's going to take a lot of time if you're a new teacher. That might mean saying no to some other things like TV or hobbies or just other things. So there's going to be a time sacrifice involved. Energy. It kind of goes with the above, but I mean here more in a relational sense, the relational dimension of, of sacrifice, your, your, your emotional energy. You know, to be a leader or minister requires bearing the burdens of others. But that can be emotionally taxing or just kind of on your spirit, taxing. It's hard enough to bear your own burdens, right? All the trouble you have in life, but in ministry and spiritual leadership, so much of it involves helping those who are weak, bearing their burdens. And then and to a large degree, you almost take them on yourself. You're helping that couple 
rebuild their, their broken marriage. And it's kind of weigh on you to, to some degree. Some guys handle that better than others. But nonetheless, there, there may be a sacrifice there of, of just energy or just a burden. That's what we're talking about. How about popularity? There's endless critics. There will always be critics of the church, sometimes within, always without. But as a leader, you're going to have to make difficult decisions sometimes, decisions that not everyone agrees with. But if you're ruled by principles, hey, like Paul, like you, you, can't, you have no choice. This is what we have to do. And it might mean some will turn away. Some might not like you. Just like, hey, they slandered the Lord, they might slander you. But what are you going to do? It's often been said, it's very lonely at the top, which just means for those in leadership, you understand there's a type of loneliness. They're going places others aren't going. They're making sacrifices others aren't making. And it can be a lonely road, but for the leader, again, so be it. Maybe God has called you to be kind of like a Jeremiah. You're going to have just a very lonely ministry among ungodly people. You know, today, think of the modern missionary, very lonely. It might be a sacrifice you are called to make. Well, if you're called into leadership, so be it. And none of this should surprise you, though. Self-sacrifice is inherent in very Christian life, right? Did not Christ call all of us to deny self to follow him? That's for all disciples. And you can only expect that more so for leaders. Self-denial and sacrifice are required if you are to fulfill the mission of leadership as we've been studying. And so either you're willing to count the cost in leadership and make that sacrifice or you're not. And hey, maybe, you, maybe some of you in here, you're aspiring to leadership and maybe someday you, you want to or you will lead a small group. And like you're not preaching sermons. It's not a 40-hour week commitment. But there's a cost, isn't there? You've got a character, uh, requirements. You have definitely time, some preparation, the time of, follow-up, just kind of that, that, the little shepherding role of keeping tabs on people, praying for them, and just helping them, being a first line of defense as a counselor. You know, that kind of goes to the territory. You, you count that cost and either you're, you're willing to, to make that cost, to pay that cost, or you're not. And that leads to uh, the last one we'll get through today, marked by desire. Desire, you got to want to do that. Desire, another quality of an effective leader. Marked by desire. Last week we studied the character qualifications of a biblical leader through Titus 1. Then we cross-referenced with 1 Timothy 3. You remember in 1 Timothy 3, he, he gives that list of character qualifications. And what's the first thing on the list? Anyone remember? Nod your head, yes? No? Okay. <laughs> you got to watch it. I'm watching you. Yeah, well, okay. So you're right. Desire. The first thing he mentioned was being above reproach. That's what I was expecting you to say. Being above reproach, which is technically that's the first character requirement given to be above reproach. And that's, we learned that's that umbrella term and so forth. But yes, like Richard mentioned before that, technically in the verse before, before he gets to the, the character Qualifications for the leader, in a way, he really inserts one uh, leadership quality. Before he gets to the character lists, he, he has a leadership quality. And what is it? Well, First Timothy 3, verse 1, he says it's a trustworthy statement. 
If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And again, it might be splitting hairs, but that's not technically a character qualification. That's just, or it's not, so to speak, a character requirement. It's more of just a quality, a quality in the man, and it is desire. It's a fine work he desires to do. He aspires to the office. That's a quality. It's a, a special quality that makes for an effective leader. And ministry has to be driven by desire. If your own heart isn't in it, one, you're going to burn out real fast. Two, you'll probably burn other people on your way out. And three, you're not going to inspire people very much if you're not in it. It's not going to lead others to follow your charge if you're half-hearted. You know, think about Paul. How could someone like that endure all that hardship, all that sacrifice if his heart wasn't in it, if he was not compelled by a real love for the Lord, passion for the lost, belief in the gospel. And you can't fake that at that point. You're either in it or you're not. And if he did not desire to minister the gospel and serve others, he would not have lasted and neither will you at whatever level. So check your desire level. Those of you aspiring to leadership in the church, why? Is it something you, you truly desire? Do you feel others are pressuring you? Ignore the pressures. Don't become a leader because of just simply external pressure. Do you have a, a real desire to shepherd others, to serve others? I think if you don't, that's okay. Let this be kind of an initial test where you're, you're counting the cost. You consider the hardship. You consider the sacrifice. Do you still aspire to the work? Even if you're not going to be an elder, even if you'll just be a counselor, a biblical counselor, do you aspire to that work, that ministry, that form of leadership? And you know what I find, though, is that the best and the most effective leaders, they just can't help it. They're not blind to the cost. They know the cost of, of leadership. And they know leadership is hard, but they, they, just, they still just want to do it. There's something in them that's drawn to leadership. It's in their character. It's in their, their, you might say, their essence as God made them and saved them. They're just drawn to leadership. They have that desire, a drive within them. They're the type of people who, they don't want to just sit in the back and hide. They, they want to get out in front and lead. Just part of their nature. And you match, you take someone like that, and then you have someone who has that desire, and then they, they fill all the character requirements of First Timothy 3, and well, you've got yourself a, a pretty good biblical leader beginning right there with desire matched with uh, that character. So just consider your desire in leadership. Make sure it's there and let it drive you. And make sure your desire for leadership in the church is is there for the right reasons as well. You just be reminded, you know, we're not doing this to serve self, to build our own kingdom, our own glory, our own name, but Christ. So have desire, have the right desires, have a pure desire, and that will help you overcome so many of those hardships, so many of the sacrifices and the difficulties. You're driven by desire to honor God, serve others, and build up the church. If that's you, God will use you. That's as far as we'll get tonight. We'll come back next week and just finish off that list of some of these qualities, the qualities that make for not just a leader, an effective leader. 
And I trust that's, that's what we want to be. It's what you want to be, whether this is in your home, uh, your workplace, or in the church especially, we need these qualities. Well, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its teaching tonight about what makes for an effective leader. And in many respects, all of us are called to lead. All who are parents are leaders. All the husbands in the room are leaders. Many have leadership roles at work, and many have leadership roles at church. And this, this teaching really does matter for more than just elders and pastors. And this is what makes for an effective leader. And we, we want to be effective. We want to, to show others the way. We want to serve them and, and build them up in Christ. We don't want to turn them away or discourage them, Lord. And, and we need these qualities at work in our lives. They can be learned. You can grow us. This is the skill and that you can help us here, Lord. And we pray you do that for myself and for the elders and pastors here at this church and for everyone else in leadership. Just continue to work on us and form us into Christ's image. Build these qualities in us that we might lead your people, lead one another to Christ and to his image. You bless us in this, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.